of death. Well, we're going to uh, have some other parts of the service, but we want to turn our preacher loose. <laughs> we wanted David to go up front because we want to hear the word of God. I thank God he has energized him. I asked him how long he's been with Jews for Jesus. Would you believe 40 years he's been with them? And uh, still just a kid. David, come. We want you to come. Welcome, David. Dave Brickner. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here for this evening, which, as was advertised, we're going to talk about the rapture of the church. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I always love coming here because your pastor puts me on the spot. And he says he wants me to do something new. Last time he gave me the title, he said, I want you to preach on, Will Israel Survive ISIS? And I don't know if you remember, that was a year ago. I've got some good mileage out of that message, I want to tell you. So I really do appreciate the challenge. And so this time around, we got another first. And um, I'm looking forward to what's going to happen here today. Last time we had some questions and answers. I don't know if we're going to have time for that, but uh, I certainly would uh, welcome your input. And uh, the rapture of the church is uh, a very personal uh, doctrine for me. I don't know, Pastor Phil, the last time you preached a message on the rapture of the church. I don't think I've ever heard one preached before. So... Uh, uh, it, it, it's a very personal doctrine because I can tell you back when I was, uh, before I gave my life to Christ, I was very much aware of the gospel and of end times prophecy and of this doctrine of the rapture. But I knew that if it happened, I wasn't ready. Some of you maybe have been around long enough to remember that old Christian rocker, Larry Norman. You know, there's no time to change your mind. The sun has come, and you've been left behind. All right? Well, I kind of heard that song, and I kind of took it to heart. And I had one of the most vivid dreams I've ever had in my life. In fact, I think it's the most vivid I've ever had because I can still remember what I felt like. And it was an apocalyptic kind of a scenario. There were clouds, and it was dark, and I just had a sense that something serious was going on and, uh, and that it was the rapture. Now, none of this is particularly biblical. I want to make that caveat to begin with, okay? But I realized that the rapture was happening, and I wasn't ready. And the way it was happening was kind of in slow motion in my dream, okay? So that's not the way the Bible talks about it, but people were starting to float. They were floating up, you know? And I was looking, and I realized, this is the rapture. I want to go too. And I, and I started to jump, you know? And I, and I, and I would go up, and, and like I'd sink slowly back down to earth. Like I couldn't, you know, I was almost getting there, but there was just something holding me down, and I'd get about, you know, be 10, 12 feet up in the air, and then slowly, slowly, I wasn't going. And I woke up, you know, cold sweat, and that was one of the things that the Lord really used in my life to help me to realize I needed to give my heart to Jesus, and I did. <laughs> now, again, that's not a theological dream. 
it's a it's a dream that God used, however, uh, though it may not be theologically correct. And so, because of that, I think you know this doctrine, this reality that the Bible does speak about, it's personal, and it's important. And you know, there's a lot of people who maybe feel like. Um, it's really not all that important. You know, when it happens, I know Jesus, whatever, God's going to do his thing, and <clears throat> doesn't really matter. Well, let me tell you a story. There were a bunch of fishermen who went out for a long fishing uh, journey, about a week or so, and they were out and uh, catching fish, and it was time for them to come back home. And uh, they were coming back to the fishing village, and the first mate scrambled up the mast of the ship and began to look through the telescope. The gathered crowd from the village that were waiting at the dock, and he started to yell down to the boat, uh, to the deck of the boat, and he said, Hey, Ben, I see your wife Sue, and, and Bob, there's Mary and the kids, and so on. But there was one fisherman who didn't hear his wife's name called, and sure enough, when he got into the dock, the crowd there he scanned the crowd she wasn't there so disappointed he trudged his way home and uh, he could see in the distance his little cottage with the front porch light twinkling in the twilight as he walked up the steps of the house and opened the door there was his wife and she said honey I've been waiting for you yes the fisherman replied but you see the other men's wives were watching for them and you see, for us who believe in the return of Christ, it's not enough just to keep the front porch light on as though we believe. It's not enough just to wait. We need to watch. While we wait for that blessed hope, Paul says to Titus, that glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's what we need to do. And the doctrine of the rapture, perhaps more than any, I mean, personally, it got me to the point where I was willing to make sure that I was ready and that I wasn't going to be left behind. But for all of us who love the Lord, who love his appearing, as the Apostle Paul says, the doctrine of the rapture emphasizes in our lives a spiritual discipline of the eminence, that is, the at any time it could happen, nature of Christ's return. And God wants that for each and every one of us too. To live in expectation that at any moment the glory of Christ could be something that we are in the midst of because of the rapture of the church. Now I know there, you know, actually God has used this in more than just my life. Some of you might remember the book by Hal Lindsey, The Late Great Planet Earth, that he wrote back, I, I don't remember exactly whether it was the late 60s or early 70s, but it was right around that time became, became very popular, and that was actually when the Jews for Jesus ministry really began, and a lot of the people, my brother-in-law, Tuvia Zaretsky, many of the Jews for Jesus who came to Christ back in those early days, that book was very influential. But since then, there's a few more books that have been written that have not been quite as influential. And I would say that Hal got most of it right. He got a few things not right, but God used that book. But God is, uh, you know, other books have not been quite so 
uh, useful. Like, for example, you might remember 88 reasons why Jesus is coming again in 1988. <laughs> right? Went on sale real cheap in 1989. <laughs> and there have been other reasons why uh, this doctrine of the rapture has been dismissed. Perhaps more than any other, it's kind of mocked. It seems a little over the top, really. All of a sudden, in the twinkling of an eye, people are going to just disappear off the face of the planet. And, you know, we've had some interesting efforts in film to catch, capture that event, you know. Somehow I can't quite figure out how someone who's raptured has their clothes neatly folded. Okay, you know, it's imagination, right? Because in reality, the Bible says and talks about the rapture, but it doesn't give us all the specifics that we'd like to have. Much like the doctrine of the Trinity, the details are there. You have to kind of pull them together, but it's not always explicitly explained. It needs some massaging. It needs to be put together, if you will. And so I've made an attempt to try and do that. And in fact, I've been inspired to do that by my own personal story. And then back very soon after I became the executive director of Jews for Jesus, I had this idea that, you know, as much as the apostles preached that Christ had come, they preached he was coming again. It was part of their evangelistic strategy in the book of Acts to do so, and I felt like maybe we should do that in Jews for Jesus. So in 1998, I sat down to write a book. It wasn't going to be uh, 98 reasons why Jesus, no, but I felt like there was enough that we could know. There was enough that we could understand that would be a motivation for evangelism and for the purpose of proclamation of the gospel. And so we, I came up with this book. Maybe you've seen it before. Some of you have it. It's called Future Hope, A Jewish Christian Look at the End of the World. And it was written primarily for the seeker. And since then, I've discovered that a lot of believers like it because it's really simple, it's direct, it's straightforward, and each chapter deals with another issue regarding end times, including this doctrine of the rapture, which I called the Great Disappearing Act. That's one of the chapters, and, um, you know, uh, each chapter also led to a, um, a, an explanation of the gospel and uh, an, an invitation to receive the Lord. And we started advertising this in places like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and Time and Newsweek, and uh, the artist... Uh, talked to me and kind of got some imagery, I guess, from my own personal story because it was a picture of people going up. And, I mean, they were going up in all kinds of different shapes and sizes. One of the kids was, like, riding a skateboard up into the heaven. <laughs> and this, the caption read, The end of the world is no time to finally realize Jesus is the Messiah. It's all in the book. And we offered it free of charge to anyone who said they were a seeker and not yet a believer. Believers we charged, okay? <laughs> but you know, over 50,000 of these books were ordered. And there's a coupon in the back. 
And everybody in Jews for Jesus was saying, why are we doing this? We never really made a big deal about end times prophecy before. And I just felt like that was something that God wanted us to do. A coupon in the back that says, hey, I read the text. I've prayed the prayer. I'm signing my name. And there's a date where they could say, I don't understand these texts. Please send me more information. We had over 10,000 people that signed the date that they had prayed to receive the Lord and sent that coupon in. Hallelujah, huh? So again, this, uh, this doctrine is important to me. And I've seen the way the Lord has blessed the proclamation of his word. And I really want to uh, tackle this subject uh, with three nice baptistic points. Passages, pictures, and promises. The reason why I believe not just in the rapture of the church, I believe in the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. And I want to put up a, a chart that actually is one of the appendices uh, in the book that will show you what uh, is the basis in kind of a summary form, and then we'll get into the passages, pictures, and promises. And so if we can get that PowerPoint up, a lot of people say they don't believe in the rapture, but what they mean is that they don't believe in the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. They believe in the coming of Christ, and the Bible talks about rapture as something that God's going to do when Christ returns, but they say that it's all one event. Those of us who believe in the pre-tribulation rapture of the church believe that Christ's coming is in two unique components, the rapture and the return. The rapture and the return. You may or may not be able to see the white up there, but I'll, I'll uh, kind of spell it out for you. And by the way, if you don't have this book, this is the last one we sold out this morning. Um, so here's what I want to do. If you want this book, it, it costs 12 bucks. If you go back to the back table and fill out a card and give the 12 bucks, I will mail it to you this week with no postage required, okay? So I'm sorry that we didn't bring enough of these. But here's this appendix number three. The difference between the rapture and the return of the second coming of Christ. The event, number one, is the rapture of the believers. Who is involved? Only believers in Jesus. What happens? Believers are caught away where it happens, in the air, when it happens, before wrath, why it happens, to save believers from wrath, how it happens, surprise, like a thief in the night. All right, those are the unique components that separate the rapture of the church from the return of Christ. Listen to what the return of Messiah is. Who's involved? Not just believers in Jesus, but all humanity. What happens? Messiah appears. Where? On the earth. His foot touches down on the Mount of Olives. When it happens? After wrath. After tribulation. Why it happens? To save Israel from the Antichrist and to set up the return of Jesus, the, the, the rule of Jesus on the earth. And how it happens? It's the climax of clearly unfolding events 
over a seven-year period, which Jeremiah called Jacob's trouble, and Jesus called tribulation such as you never seen. So if you're here, when the Antichrist signs the covenant with Israel and the rebuilding of the third temple begins, you don't have to wonder when it's going to happen. Start counting seven years. If you can hold out, you got it made. But I don't think that's what's happening, okay? And now let's try and demonstrate how these two events are different. You know, and there are a number of passages. We won't have the time today to go through all of them, but I'll, I'll give them to you in case you want to write it down. And uh, certainly in the passages, there are two scenarios that are unpacked. And the reason why people conflate the events of the rapture and the return is because the Bible does. The Bible puts them together in language that sometimes we have to sift through and figure out why is it like that. Now, do you think that that's an unusual thing for God to do? I want to assure you it's not. Imagine that you are an Old Testament saint. You're a Jew in Israel, and you've all, all you've got is the, the Hebrew Bible, and you're prior to the coming of Jesus, and you're reading about the Messiah. What are you going to see? You're going to see passages that seem to talk about someone who's coming in the clouds of heaven, someone who's going to right all the wrongs, someone who's going to overthrow the oppressors of Israel, Give us all a four-day work week, <laughs> you know? And then you're going to see other passages where he's riding in on a donkey rather than this white stallion, where he's a, a man of sorrows, rejected. All of these things, uh, 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 smoking flax, he will not quench. What is this? It's two pictures of the Messiah and his coming. And the rabbis were so confused by this, they actually, in order to resolve it, came up with two Messiahs, Messiah's son of David and Messiah's son of Joseph. Messiah's son of Joseph is the one who fits the picture of the suffering servant, and he's going to come, and he's going to fight against the Jewish version of the Antichrist, who they call Arminus, Arminus, A-R-M-I-N-U-S, and then... He's going to die in battle. And then Messiah, son of David, is going to come, boom, and resurrect Messiah, son of Joseph, from the dead, and then rule and reign, and Messiah, son of Joseph, just kind of disappears off the scene. Well, it was a creative attempt to try and figure out how this can be, but they got it wrong. Not uh, two Messiahs, one coming, but one Messiah, two comings, you see? So God does this. In fact, Jesus even did it. Do you remember when he went and, and, and spoke in the synagogue in Nazareth? He said, the, the, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of, those, of the eyes of those who are blind, to declare the acceptable year of the Lord. And guess what? He was quoting from Isaiah 60. And he stopped in the middle of a verse, in the middle of the Hebrew, because it goes on to say, and to declare judgment 
and all the rest of the things that the Messiah would do. So this idea of a conflation of these two events is not only possible, it's typical. It's how God sometimes tells us, you know, you don't really need to know all the details, but you have to know enough to, leave, to do more than leave the front porch light on. You have to love his appearing. You have to long for his appearing. You have to look into it. So we see these in the passages, these two scenarios. For example, one of the major passages that you want to read whenever you're talking about end times prophecy is Matthew 24, which is the Olivet Discourse. It's called that because Jesus gave it on the Mount of Olives. He comes out of the temple, and he walks up to the Mount of Olives, and he had just been through talking about how the temple's going to get destroyed. I mentioned that this morning. And then the disciples sit him down and say, now, wait a minute. When are these things going to happen? And what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, that's a, a multiple question. There's a, a different parts to that answer. When are these things? That is what he was just talking about. And that's why people get so confused. Because Matthew 24 is, in a sense, an answer to that. And here's the thing. Jesus says throughout the chapter, he's laying out specifically what's going to happen. He talks about the birth pangs of the Messiah. You know, roars, rumors of wars, and birth pangs. For those of you ladies who've had birth, you know what this is like. It gets more intense and closer together the closer you come to the actual birth. And so these signs, and Jesus, but that's not even the end. That's just kind of like the preview. And, but there's this sense of chronology. There's a sense of specificity. And Jesus tells us two times in the Olivet Discourse, I tell you this so you won't be misled, but he also says you don't know when to expect him. I tell you these things in advance, but you don't know when. <laughs> you see? It's kind of confusing. Uh, for example, in Revelation chapter 3, the apostle John is speaking to the church in Sardis, and in verse 3 he says, I'm coming as a thief in the night, and you do not know the hour. I will come. But then in Revelation chapter 4, we begin to get this chronological unfolding of all of these apocalyptic events that are occurring in the last days. And so it seems, well, on the one hand, God wants us to know a lot of detail. He doesn't want us to know more than he thinks we need to know. I mean, that's something that I think we could probably spend the whole rest of the night about. How does faith well up within us when God gives us not as much as we want to know? Like, why are we going through that difficulty right now? You know what? He's not going to tell you that. He doesn't tell you the why. <laughs> he tells you the what more often, doesn't he? When we're in the midst of the trial, the midst of the burden, he says, this is what I'm going to do in your life right now. I'm not telling you why. Inquiring minds want to know. And Jesus said, it's not for you to know the kairos and the chronos, the times and the seasons. We want to know. And that's been one of the most difficult things that we've heard from our Lord Jesus. It's not for you to know. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you 
that where I be you may be also, that I might take you to myself. He's taking us to himself, you see. John 14, 3. And when we see him, we will be like him, John tells us in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. And Paul tells us in Philippians 3, 20, we await from heaven a Savior who will transform our lowly bodies. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, he says, we do not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, and by the way, when you look at Matthew 24, you look at 1 and 2 Thessalonians, you realize the book of Daniel serves as the backdrop, the theological underpinning for all of this New Testament stuff. So if you want to know the context in which you can figure out and really place a lot of this apocalyptic language in uh, the Olivet Discourse, in the letters to the Thessalonians, and even the book of Revelation. Go back and study Daniel, the last, you know, from chapter 7 onward, really. So uh, he says that this Messiah is going to be real, revealed from heaven with blazing fire to punish, and all the tribes on earth will see him and mourn, and yet he's coming as a thief in the night. And he's going to take us to be with him and we'll be transformed. So there's this language of two scenarios that's developing as we look at these passages. Now the key verse in which this word rapture actually appears is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain shall be, what? Caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And that word in the Greek, harpazo, caught up, is translated into Latin, rapturo, from which we get this word rapture, from which we now have this doctrine. There's something that's going to happen in the twinkling of an eye. We're going to be caught up. It's not like my dream, you know, slow motion trying to get there. It's like, boom, it's happening. And it's happening suddenly. And Jesus in both Luke and in Matthew talks about, you know, two people will be out in the field and one will be left behind. I'm coming like a thief in the night. And yet he's coming from heaven with blazing fire. Can you see it? Can you see the two pictures? And they're often in the same passage in the Olivet Discourse or in Thessalonians. And we have to try and, even as Jesus did, figure out how these go together to the best of our ability. And the pre-tribulation rapture of the church, I believe, is what makes the best sense for all of these passages that seem at times to be even contradictory, but really are just conflating these two amazing events of which only believers will participate in the first and all the world in the second. Now, there's another interesting passage I just want to briefly mention. Again, I think it's going to be up to Pastor Phil to really exegete these. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we know that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, it says this, 
that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. So the question is, who is Paul referring to? Because it's a very kind of obscure reference. Who's the restrainer? And people will say there's three options. The, the restrainer, that is the one who's holding back uh, the events of what's going to be ultimately the cataclysmic judgment of God on the earth, this restrainer needs to be taken out of the way. And some will say, well, it's the collapse of government. The government officially restrains evil, sometimes, sometimes not, you know. We see it <laughs> in the news regularly that the government is not really a good restrainer all the time, and sometimes it's an inciter instead of an, a restrainer, right? So I don't go for that. Another one uh, opinion is the Holy Spirit is the restrainer. Well, folks, who do you think is indwelling the 144,000 Jews who are out preaching the gospel like so many Billy Grahams running around the world? Don't you think that the Holy Spirit is at work during the Great Tribulation? bringing people to a knowledge of Christ apart from the Holy Spirit can't be. So in my opinion, the third option is the best, and that is the restrainer is the church. The church of Jesus Christ on the earth is the restrainer of evil. Sometimes we, like the government, aren't the best at doing our job, but God, by his Holy Spirit, has decided to work in this church age through the church to restrain evil. And by God's grace, even though we have a checkered history, the church is the bride of Christ and will be presented before him spotless. And God uses the church to restrain evil. You are the salt of the earth, a restrainer from things that can go wrong with meat and other foods. That was how they did it. They salted the meat. And so Jesus uses that imagery. And I believe that when the restrainer is taken out of the way, that is what signals the coming of God's judgment on the earth, the great and terrible day of the Lord, Jacob's trouble, tribulation such as the world has never seen. It's got to be Jacob's trouble because Israel, Jacob, is once again the focal point of God's redemptive purposes. All of the people that you see active in the great tribulation on behalf of God are Jews. 144,000, 12,000 from 12 tribes. All Jews. The two witnesses, well, we don't exactly know who they are, but, you know, the imagery of the Older Testament saints like Elijah has often been suggested, whether it's a real coming again of Elijah. I'm not going with that, but I do believe that they are likewise in the image of Old Testament saints, Jewish Witnesses who are martyrs on the streets of Jerusalem, the Bible says. So here we have this restrainer being taken out of the way. The church, the rapture of the church then signals the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And the day starts dark. Jewish reckoning a day starts at sundown and goes to sundown. So the day of the Lord is like that. We see darkness fall across the land, and then it gets lighter. And that is the day of the Lord. There are passages that I've 
mentioned here just briefly that I encourage you to go back and study. But then there are pictures as well. And uh, pictures are good. God uses pictures to grab our attention, and he uses them throughout the revelation of his word to kind of emphasize and reemphasize. Uh, for example, in Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2, we see uh, this kind of imagery. Um, and I'll just turn there real quickly. If you want to turn at 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, here's what it says. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of the lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment. It's a very unusual passage which deserves its own evening just to go through. And I just encourage you to study all these passages because they're rich. But the point is that God has been faithful in using judgment and preserving his saints. And there are two examples from the Old Testament that are used by Peter and that are also used by Jesus. One is Noah and the flood, and the other is Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and his family. And in each case, God brought judgment on the place where the believer was living. And God did not bring judgment on the believer. The believer was saved through an ark. The believer was saved by the angels actually pulling them right out of the city. Don't look back. And Lot's wife did, and we all know what happened. But there was salvation in the midst of judgment. And these pictures are telling us that God is the same, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That God works in certain ways. He's done it in the past. That's the way he's going to work in the future. There's a pattern with God. He's trustworthy. You know what he's done in the past. He's made the promise he's going to work the same way in the future. He's worked for believers who trust him in the past. He's going to work for you and me in the same way. And so the rapture of the church emphasizes the fact that God is not going to put us through the wrath that is to come. People say, oh, the church, you know, you guys who are pushing this pre-tribulation rapture just because you don't want to suffer. Believe me, church is suffering enough right now. Christians in Iraq may be thinking that they're in the great tribulation right now. They're not, but there's a lot of suffering going on, and you have your own share of them, I'm sure. Nobody's trying to avoid suffering. We're trying to read the Word of God, trying to understand what God promises. God is holding true to form. He lifts his godly ones out from wrath, the wrath that he's pouring down on the unbelievers. That's what Peter is saying here, and that's what the pictures, the stories of God and his work in history reveals. 
Now I'm going to make another argument that is probably not as strong, but it's because it, it's an argument from silence. But it adds to this picture, and that is of what we see in the book of Revelation. The whole thing, if you've read Revelation, you know, starts out with letters to churches, right? All kinds of churches and all kinds of spiritual conditions. Some have tried to make a big deal out of this being a chronology of the history of the church, and we're in Laodicea. Well, I'm not so sure about that. But we can see all kinds of evidences of our church today in each one of those churches because it's human nature. And the church, though, we are the bride of Christ and are righteous in Christ, have a lot of flaws. And so did those churches that John was writing to. So we can identify with that. But here's what happens. After the first three chapters, which is church, 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 chapter 4, verse 1, John says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here. Come up here. And I will show you things which must take place after this. After what? After he came up there. And from this point on, John sees multiple pictures of God's judgment, the tribulation. But here's the point. From that, there is no mention in these chapters of the church. Not one. Oh, Israel's all over the place. All over the place in the midst of it, 144,000 from every 12. Oh, there is one mention of the church. That's right. Chapter 7, verse 9. After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number of all the nations and the tribes and the peoples and the tongues, standing where? Before the Lord and before his throne and before the Lamb who was clothed with white robes and they had palm branches in their hands and they're crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Then one of the elders answered and said to me, when I, when I asked, who are these arrayed in white robes? Where do they come from? I said to him, sir, I don't know. And he said, these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. Now, a lot of people read that and say, oh, they're saints who got saved during the great tribulation. No. They're the people who were spared from the great tribulation. That's the one picture that you have of the church. They're the ones who were out of. They were lifted out of. They were not included in the great tribulation. Do you see? And everywhere else, it's all about Israel. Now, like they say, an argument from silence is not exactly the strongest argument, but when you add it to everything else that we've been reading about, doesn't it seem to convey something? All right, now the most important thing is this issue of God's character, his love for us. And that has to do with promises. We've talked about passages. We've talked about pictures. Now, look at the promises. 2 Peter chapter 3. He's not slow as some count slowness, but he is patient, not wanting any to perish and desiring that all should come to repentance. God is desirous of people repenting. But the promise is that those of us who do repent will be saved from the wrath that is to come. As a believer in Jesus, we will not endure wrath. That's what the Bible says. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. We wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath that is to come. When is God pouring out wrath? During the great tribulation, the book of Revelation is clear. That whole period of time. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, it says, For God has not destined us to wrath, but for obtaining salvation through Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 8 through 11, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God that is to come through him. Wow. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, And now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise and there will be such a time of distress as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. The promise that grounds our position is that we are going to be saved from that time which purpose is to pour out God's wrath upon the earth. And we will be spared from that because of Jesus Christ. Again, take a look at that chart. Appendix number three. With the rapture, we're talking about believers in Jesus. With the return, we're talking about all humanity. With the rapture, we're talking about believers being caught away, harpazo, rapturo, violently, if you will, in a twinkling of an eye. Some are left behind and some disappear. Believers are caught away In the return, Messiah appears in glory and every eye will see and all the nations will mourn. With the rapture, it happens in the air. We're caught up in the air to be with the Messiah. In the return, it happens on the earth as his foot touches down on the Mount of Olives and that mountain is split from east to west. And then it's fulfilled all the promises of the prophet Zechariah, and I will pour out upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn as one mourns for an only son, and weep bitterly as in the weeping of a firstborn. And in that day a great fountain will be opened in Jerusalem for cleansing and for purification, and thus all Israel will be saved. That's the return. When it happens, rapture before wrath, return after wrath. Why it happens? To save believers from the coming wrath. Return of Messiah to save Israel from the Antichrist. How it happens, rapture, surprise, thief in the night. You don't know. You won't be able to know. Return the climax of clearly unfolding events at the end of a seven-year period, which the scriptures have lots to say about. Are you with me? Can you see that there are lots of good reasons to believe in the pre-tribulation rapture of the church? If the imminence of Christ's return means anything, you can't count down seven years until you get there, if you should survive. But the rapture is definitely something that happens with no clear, it could happen now. I could just, you know, I'm in the middle of this message and boom, we're gone. I hope none of you will be left. We'd all be gone, right? 
I want to be out on the street corner preaching and I want to be able to use this as the greatest sermon illustration in the history of man. Jesus is coming. I'm going to disappear. Boom. Well, what did you just do? Nobody would believe it, right? But we're sowing seed now for a harvest that's yet to come. Tell all of your unsaved friends about the rapture and don't worry about them mocking because if it happens and you disappear, they're going to be some of the ones that are going to get saved in that great tribulation. Now, we hope that they will all be ready, and we want to pray for that. We want to tell them about the rapture, not just for some after effect, but that they might, maybe as I, really realize they're not ready. And may God give dreams and visions and unfolding of his word that this might happen. In the meantime, let's cultivate in our hearts a love for his appearing. Think of it this way. <laughs> there are two people at SFO waiting for the same flight. All right? One knows all the details because they're in the tower. They are a flight control operator. They knew when that plane took off from London's Heathrow. How many souls were on that flight? The name on the tail, the number, and what runway it's coming in and exactly the time it's touching down because they're a flight control operator. Well, there's another person waiting for that same flight. And on that plane is her fiancé, whom she hasn't seen in six months. Same flight. She doesn't know any of the details. She doesn't know when it left, how many people are on, what runway it's landing on, and even when it's going to land. She's got the approximate time, right? But man... She just can't wait for that moment when the doors fling open. He comes walking through and sweeps her into his arms. Which would you rather be? <laughs> we don't know it all. We can't know it all. But brothers and sisters, we know enough to love his appearing. Do you love the appearing of the Lord tonight? Hallelujah. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. <laughs> You know, we in the church, we greet one another, how you doing? All right. In the first church, they greeted one another with an Aramaic greeting. Maranatha. Can you say that? Maranatha. Come quickly, Lord. Amen? Amen. God bless you. God bless you. Good. Let's take some questions and answers. Let's take 10 minutes maybe for that. Uh, do you have any questions or do you already know all this? David, come down here maybe. And uh, so let's just uh, take your, uh, Daniel, you might th take this mic. If you raise your hand. I realize we're all going to be gone, but how do you think that Israel is going to get the news? I mean, it's going to come through a news channel, but how are they going to receive the fact that the church has been gone? You know, the question, how, how, how is Israel going to know? How are people going to be, you know, if you imagine, I mean, some people say that, you know, as much as one-third of the entire 
United States of America are born-again Christians? I mean, if that's true, then maybe some of them were stillborn because there's not that much life in America. But, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of Christians. Imagine what's going to happen to the American economy and the world if all of a sudden we all disappear. And that's to say, what about all the Chinese Christians and the Latin Christians and the African Christians? I mean, this world is full of God's saints that are going to disappear, and people are going to be speculating about that for a lot to come. The Bible's still going to be here. Tim LaHaye's movie, Left Behind, even with the clothes neatly folded, is still going to be here. But in, this is what drives me in Jews for Jesus. We're sowing seed now for a harvest that's yet to come. We're seeing Jews come to the Lord uh, one by one. It's all hand-picked fruit. But there's going to be a Billy Graham crusade revival among Jewish people. How are we going to get 144,000 Jews to come to the Lord and start preaching in a seven-year period? Something's going to happen. They're going to read the Bible. They're going to hear. They're going to have the sermons of Pastor Phil and everything else that's there. That's not being raptured. That's all still going to be here. And so the word of God will become alive and people will get saved and people will probably get saved the very moment that happens. They're going to say, I missed it. I wish I'd been ready, but now, God, what am I supposed to do? They're going to start reading the book of Revelation like a newspaper and saying, okay, we got some bad things coming, but <laughs> we know he's coming again, right? That's how I think it's going to happen. the people going to deal, like, when they are not raptured and they're left behind, how are they going to deal with the Antichrist? What are they going to do? Yeah, there's a whole chapter in uh, this book, and there's a lot of information about the Antichrist, about how he's going to deceive the world. Um, to us, he looks um, like, you know, from the Bible's perspective, he's like a beast coming up out of the sea. But to those who are not believers, he looks like a wise ruler, a beautiful person, an, a statesman who will offer solutions to intractable human pro political problems, and people will be absolutely convinced. Even Israel, even the Jewish people will be persuaded that he is the real deal until he comes into that third temple and says, hey, guess what? I'm more than just a man. Worship me. That's when literally all hell breaks loose because the nation of Israel says, uh-uh, and he begins his beating down the doors on the warpath to destroy God's people, which it was his intention all along. So how are people going to deal with it? Some people will get saved, and some people are going to line up behind him and get his uh, allegiance tattooed on their body. Right up here. Um, I'm kind of. Um, I'm kind of confused about the 144,000. Why do people think that only that amount is going to go? like get raptured up, or is that after the rapture? Yeah, no, the, it, it's a good question. The 144,000 
are only a part of the believers who actually go through the tribulation and they're men. The, the Bible says that they're virgin men. They've never slept with a woman. And God sets them apart for a special purpose during that tribulation to honor him, to proclaim his word. And so they're not the sum total of the believers. They're not even the sum total of the Jewish believers. They're the ones that God says, you've got a special purpose during this period of time. Okay? And, you know, whether it's 144,000 or 144,010 or 139,800, you know, the, when you're dealing with apocalyptic literature, uh, symbols are important, and we don't want to get, you know, really hung up on the specificity as much as we do that God is going to get Jewish men from the 12 tribes to proclaim the gospel during this season. And they're going to have great impact among all the nations, not just the Jewish people. People are going to hear the gospel. They're going to look around this world. They're going to see the wrath of God. And God's kindness in the midst of that wrath is going to lead people to get saved. And I would just disagree with him. It's going to be 144,000. Yes. Because I don't want anyone messing with the 1,000-year okay. reign and start making that. No, it's literally okay, 144,000. I'll, I'll go with him on that one. <laughs> the city of Babylon that falls that the Bible talks about in Revelation, what timeline is that? And who do you guys say that is? Is that Babylon or another great who's, city that who's falls? Who's that? The city that falls within an hour. It says, oh, great Babylon has fallen. One hour, destruction came. Yeah, it's Babylon. Yeah, so Babylon. That, you call that pre-trib or during the tribulation times? During the tribulation. Yeah, and then that would yeah. be actually Babylon or some other? Yes, the rise of the modern, um, you know, Iraq. I mean, one of the things that Sodom was doing was restoring uh, the city of Babylon to its ancient glory. So exactly who is inhabiting that city at that time and what they represent as they did then, the, the capital of this nation, this confederacy that turned against Israel in ancient times, they're going to be definitely doing it in the tribulation as well. Oh, do, do you think that the things going on in the world today is signs of the times that the Antichrist could even be alive today? Do the signs of the times that we see in the world today indicate the likelihood that the Antichrist is alive today? I believe so. I think that in this book I give three signs of why I believe that we are in the last days. Now, in one sense, the Bible says we are in the last days as soon as Jesus rose from the dead. So we're always in the last days from that sense of the word. But the fact that Israel is back in the land... After 2,000 years out of the ashes of the Holocaust, the nation of Israel is back. None of this stuff, people say, ah, that can't happen. You know, but God brought Israel back into nationhood, having been scattered around the world. That's one of a number of uh, evidences that seem quite obvious to me. Now, we're living in troubled times. You don't have to be... Um, Joel Rosenberg, my good friend. I'm reading the last of his novels right now. If you, you like a, a good 
novel. Joel does a great job with end times and current events and just anyway. Uh, I, I, I think the answer is yes, but I don't know uh, for sure, and uh, I don't want to be writing that 88 reasons way. <laughs> you know? Yeah, someone else. Okay. One more. One more. I, I, I'll stick around for those questions because we've got some testimonies coming, right, and communion. So I'll look forward to that, and then I'll stick around for any other questions you guys have. Yes. Uh, about the wedding of the Lamb, it's just between Jesus and the church, or it's including the saints from the uh, Old Testament? I'm not sure I understand the question. Okay, the wedding of the Lamb. The wedding of the marriage supper of the Lamb, uh -huh. yes. Is between Jesus and the church, or is including the saints from the Old Testament? Ah, that's a very good question. The marriage supper of the Lamb, Jesus is the Lamb, who will be eating at the marriage supper of the Lamb? All those who love him. And that would be Abraham, Enoch, and Pastor Phil. <laughs> I don't have a seating chart, but we're going to be there. <laughs> All right? Thanks so much. God bless.